it's it's all of this like think about your edge if you're buying a stock what is your like are you walking in the entrance while everyone else is headed towards the exit or is the reverse true and if you're doing that if you're if you're not a part of a herd you will probably be doing better in the long run I'm Mary Long, and that's Motley Fool Money Book Club member, Ricky Mulvey. More than 30 years ago, Peter Lynch published the investing classic, One Up on Wall Street. Ricky and I revisited the book, and we discuss what investors can take from it today, some parts that might need a revision, and common misunderstandings about Lynch's fabled style of investing. Joining me live in studio in Denver, Ricky Mulvey, to discuss and kick off our inaugural Motley Fool Money book club, where we've both read the uh, best-selling book, I almost said novel, (laughs) One Up on Wall Street, which has sold millions of copies by Peter Lynch. The Peter Lynch novel. (laughs) The Peter Lynch novel. The novelization of One Up on Wall Street. Can't wait to see where that goes. Okay, Ricky, this is like a fabled investing book. Both of us, this is our first time reading it. We dove right in. What were your top line takeaways? Yeah, I think my big takeaway, well, my first big takeaway is that it's funny. Like, I wasn't it's it's actually funny. Like there's there's a part on page twenty about long term investing. Quote: Long term investing has gotten so popular, it's easier to admit you're a crack addict than to admit you're a short term investor. End quote. And I'm like, oh, this guy has zingers. There are savage lines throughout, and also I think that it was written in what the 80s. Yeah, late 80s makes it funny too. There's a line at one point which reading in 2023 is hysterical. He says. In 1960, there couldn't have been a hotter industry than carpets. Really? (laughs) Nice. That is funny. Yeah. And I think you kind of need that for any investing book. There's so many dry personal finance investing books. Some of them are classics and they are intensely hard to read just because it is a and this is this is it too. Like it's a wall of information that you are getting through in a little over 200, like uh, more than 250 pages. So I'm very glad that he sprinkled in some humor. And it's also good to see where a lot of, um, I think, modern day stock investing philosophy comes from. It very much comes from Peter Lynch in this style of investing. But it's sometimes misunderstood because he makes it very clear in the, the beginning that uh, the research part, the like lived experience that you bring to investing is just the beginning and that you also need to like actually look at the company. And I think sometimes that's misunderstood as, oh, I saw a bunch of chewy boxes. That means that it's chewy's a great investment, which it might be, but that doesn't that that doesn't whole cloth make it a good stock to buy. Totally. But I do think that his focus on research and finding, getting your initial ideas on companies that you're interested in and stocks to potentially invest in, getting that from your real life. He spent so much time hammering that point home. And I do think that it's really valid, especially if you're investing today, you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, every stock's a tech stock. like Because that's so much of what's discussed in financial media and regular media. And Lynch's point is, no, 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 go out into the world. And he actually talks all about why maybe you shouldn't be investing so much in tech stocks in these hot industries, but actually exploring boring, dull, perhaps gross industries. 
Which there's a couple of like there's a couple of criticisms with that. People have done fabulously well with with tech investing, and and in the beginning, one of the things I like is he's he makes this point of like you should not listen to financial experts, mm-hmm. and I think this is a good book to kind of like take what you need from it. And he also he definitely has a beef with Wall Street analysts in terms of their expertise on on companies. They don't know as much as they'd like you to think. It's a lot of presentation of authority, and you still see that today. I remember listening to a popular I'll call it a popular show where analysts were going around a table explaining that Carvana was a good good short candidate and this was after the stock was like had completely plummeted mm-hmm. and the stock had completely plummeted and like more than like some crazy amount of the shares were already like being borrowed against and they're all nodding together and it's like oh yes this is the position that everyone's taking therefore that's the position that I'm taking I also like the way that he frames Stock investing into six baskets. Like, I generally, I think these hold up. So, if you're gonna, he's like, if you're gonna buy a stock, figure out where it fits, and then you kind of can kind of set your expectations for it. So, those six baskets: you got the slow, the slow growers, the stalwarts, the fast growers, the cyclicals, turnarounds, and asset plays. And when you buy a stock, it's like, okay, so where does it fit into these? And then you can uh, you can set it based on that. So I think a stalwart is undervalued. If it goes up forty percent, then I'm going to sell. Which I think that's a more difficult style of investing, but I like how he sets those expectations. And I think for the most part, all of those different categories are pretty self-explanatory, just based on their names alone. But do you want to walk us through and give us a brief, like, quick one-liner about what each of those actually means? Oh, that would be helpful. So yeah, slow grower is like. A more established company that is described by being a slow grower. Um, <laughs> stalwart is um, that's kind of where you're looking for your dividend payers. So uh, maybe a McDonald's, Kellogg, that kind of thing, which are referenced in the book and still I would say still hold up as those those kinds of companies. Cyclicals he would describe as like a car maker. So when the economy is doing really well, those companies are doing well. Economy goes poorly, they might cut their dividend. They might not be doing so hot. I would actually throw advertising into that bucket as well for a cyclical. Turnarounds is exactly what it sounds like. Company's gotten in, into itself into trouble. This is more of a speculative bet in Lynch's mind, and also one that you have to be intensely patient on, and, and one where you have to watch the story even more closely, making sure that the company has uh, cash on its balance sheet to, to weather weather the storm they're going through. And then asset plays is a little bit more technical. I actually think this is more difficult for like a regular investor. That's where you think that. Let's say that a company owns a lot of uh, land next to a railroad, and that is not being accounted for by the market. I, I think that's a lot. He uses a golf course as an example, as an asset play where oh, investors don't see the value of um, Pebble Beach owning this wonderful golf course. I think that's a lot harder actually in the days of the internet, and also just harder for a regular investor because um, you're you're playing the. Uh, it's. I think the market might be a little bit more efficient on on those plays. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm with you. I think asset plays are more, shall we say, advanced, but also turnarounds. I think are advanced. He like that is where you need to really kind of be diving deep into the balance sheet and seeing what other people might have missed. And I guess that's kind of a common theme with all the different types of companies that he walks out, seeing what other people might have missed, or but especially true with asset plays and turnarounds. Yeah, and that's that's where you want to look at. Leadership, obviously, and I actually really liked. Okay, so the act of judging a CEO is intensely difficult mm-hmm. for an investor, and I don't think there's there's like one way to do it. But one thing he suggests is listening to how a CEO talks about their competition, 
And if they say nice things about their competition, that's usually a good sign. And I, I, I really liked that. I guess that's somewhat related to, to the turnarounds, but I don't know. I think Lynch's perspective on management and how you should factor that into your valuation of a company was interesting to me, I th- especially today, right? We live in this, perhaps this was always true, but it feels especially true today that we live in this era of like big personality CEOs and that that's such a driver for a stock price. But a quote that Lynch says throughout the book is like, I want a company that could be run by an idiot. And I think there's a lot of, there's something totally valid in that, but also, do you want a company that is run by an idiot? Yeah. <laughs> and how much should you, how much does management matter when you're looking at a business? Maybe you're looking at the basic business first, but management has to have a play a factor in your evaluation of it, right? Yeah. And there's also an element of this book where I would say take it seriously, but not literally. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was, it was written what, 30-ish years ago? But I still think a lot of it holds true. When he's looking for a company, it, there's there's a little bit of a treatise against just looking for growth. He says, quote, if you find a business that can get away with raising prices year after year without losing customers, an addictive product such as cigarettes fits the bill, you've got a terrific investment, end quote. And I, I still think that holds true today. Mm-hmm. He's very much looking for pricing power more than just top-line revenue growth, and even ex- expands it to the point of look for companies taking market share in a declining industry. And you almost have more protection because you don't have to worry about entrance fighting for that market. And I, I really like that as a frame to look for companies. Yeah, he talks. He loves fast growers. That's a thing. But he hates fast growing industries. And that was an interesting distinction to me. Like, no, no, no. You don't want to go where everyone else is going. You don't want to go for what's fast. He talks about like being interested in plastic forks and knives. Yeah. That's a slow growing, maybe even no growing industry. But if you crack the code there, a company itself can see a lot of growth. Yeah, people people aren't the picnicking industry might have uh, might have some stability anywhere. to it. <laughs> um, and and with that, it's kind of uh, you know his his advice would be avoiding hot stocks and hot industries. Mm-hmm. You can probably think of two of those for exactly right now in 2023. One of his big pieces of advice is. Um, you know, not being afraid to kick the tires, and you know, not just look, not just try to discover companies in your daily life, but you know, going to stores and and you know, trying their food, that kind of thing. And you might be wrong sometimes, but there's also for a lot of let's say like chain stores, chain retail stores, there's going to be a little bit of uh, they're going to be very similar throughout the country. So your experience in St. Louis might not be so different from someone's experience in Columbus, Ohio. And with that, like. It's it's all of this like think about your edge if you're buying a stock. What is your ed- like? Are you walking in the entrance while everyone else is headed towards the exit, or is the reverse true? And if you're doing that, if you're if you're not a part of a herd, you will probably be doing better in the long run. And and this goes back to the whole research conversation. But there's a fine line I think between focusing like looking at your own life for stories, which is something that Lynch is obviously advocating for for stories for companies. And also going where it's kind of gross and where things are dull. And what's interesting to me about that is, well, if you're looking at your own life, you might not immediately be seeing what's gross or dull. And so you kind of have to like look around you, but also go deeper than you would just typically as a regular consumer to look for the company behind what's in front of you or that's kind of doing the dirty work that you don't typically see, but that you understand because you're paying attention needs to get done. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think all of it is just like tactics, and and both of those make sense. And also, there are parts of this book where 
they might be less applicable to you because he is a he is a professional stock picker who owns very clearly 1500 companies insane <laughs> and so it's like part of his advice is that you want to own like you want to be able to keep up with the story for all of the companies that you own and and there's there's kind of this like write off line of like i own 1500 but don't you worry about me <laughs> like and and you know, yes i will leave it at that um one other thing that i think is kind of misunderstood in the big takeaways is this section on like don't pull flowers um, and don't water the weeds? There's a lot of this where he does, like there. There's a section where he suggests doubling down on an underperforming stock. Quote: To me, a price drop is an opportunity to load up on bargains from among your worst performance and your laggards that show promise. End quote. And I think sometimes that can be a little misunderstood, but also there's the advice that if the story changes, you should sell. So. I don't know. Like again, this is a book where you want to kind of take what you need from it. Yeah. And that he in talking about those six different types of companies and realizing upfront which category whatever company you're looking at falls into, he admits after going through all this, well, companies change categories all the time. And so the story changes, that shifts. Maybe that means it's time to leave or it's time to sell and if it's if a company a stock has done what you wanted it to when you got in, but it might also mean that it's time to rewrite the story and come up with something new. And that's something that I quite like about this book is he doesn't just like drop those six categories on us early on and leave them there. That like is carried on throughout the entire Yeah, two sections I found really valuable. One is the lies that investors tell themselves. Mm. I think many of those are true today. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the portion where what is it? A stock does not know that you own it. Mm -hmm. And the other section I really like is when he breaks down how he views a balance sheet. If you're if you're a stock investor, I think those two sections are in particular are worth visiting. Yeah, and I think when I've read book, like investing books before and there's a section dedicated towards going through the balance sheet, so often it's kind of going through the balance sheet line by line and explaining very blandly and clearly this is what this means. Yeah. And he doesn't really walk through it line by line. He but it, he still walks through like the metrics that he values and pays attention to in a way that makes sense, but it's very conversational mm -hmm. and less formulaic. And I found that appealing. But I also wonder, okay, if you're just if you're reading this to really get started, is that helpful? Or do you kind of need more of a background in what these metrics are? You need to understand mean? an income statement and a balance sheet before you walk in. I think that's fair. And also this is not to judge the book with a 2023 lens. A lot of it is, uh, you know, if you if you can't figure it on on the balance sheet, go to this like uh, paid directory of stocks where they will explain what's going on, or um, call your broker, or call your broker. <laughs> there is a lot of love in this book for both the broker and active stock pickers, which uh, which makes sense because that's that's what he does for a living, or that's what he did for a living. All right, uh, I, I will say real more. quick while we're on this topic, and and what we found helpful, I thought the description of a PE ratio was one of the clearest and best. That I've read, the PE ratio can be thought of as a num as the number of years it will take the company to earn back the amount of your initial investment, assuming, of course, that the company's earnings stay constant. You've pointed this out that he doesn't really distinguish between forward PE and trailing PE, but I still th still thought that rather than just talking about this ratio as what it means numerically, but also but what it means practically, that was quite helpful. Yeah, it's a lot of the book is how to think about investing mm -hmm. um, and. I, I enjoyed that. Shall quibbles? we move to quibbles? Let's quibble. There are some quibbles. <laughs> we do have some quibbles. The first I mentioned, so I'm going to skip past the fact that he owns 
1500 stocks. stocks. <laughs> there are parts of this book, Mary, where you can imagine his co-author, John Rothschild, sitting in an office while Lynch paces around, pointing a pen in the air, <laughs> declaring that this is the law of stock picking. <laughs> the first of which is, in the beginning of the book, he describes what you need to be a stock investor. Oh, yes. This is good. <laughs> the personal... The personal qualities required are a little tough. <clears throat> they are, quote, the list of qualities ought to include patience, self-reliance, common sense, a tolerance for pain, open-mindedness, detachment, persistence, humility, flexibility, a willingness to do independent research, an equal willingness to admit mistakes, and the ability to ignore general panic. In terms of IQ, probably the best investors fall somewhere above the top 10%, but also below the top 3%, end quote. <laughs> that is a lot. And I think sometimes through this kind of thing, you know, you, you can be imperfect and you can maybe strive for these things, some of which probably are a little repetitive. But, you know, I don't think you have to build a, a perfect version of who you are as a stock investor before you get started. Yeah. And he talks about timing. And I think a kind of key theme throughout this book is it's not too late. It's not too early. Just get started and like look in your life and bring that in. And if you're waiting until you achieve human optimization to, be, <laughs> to become a stock picker, I hate to break it to you, you'll probably never become a stock picker. It's going to be tough. <laughs> well, there is one thing that you need to do, and this is another little quibble that I have. Oh. So, early in the book, he describes his journey where he starts uh, where he starts picking stocks as a sophomore in college. He buys Flying Tiger Airlines. It becomes a five bagger. And then, you know, little by little, he sells it off. And look at that. He's able to go to Wharton Business School on this Flying Tiger stock scholarship. How phenomenal. 22 pages later, before you buy a share of anything, one of the personal issues that you have to address is do you own a house? Before you invest anything in stocks, you ought to consider buying a house, since a house, after all, is the one good investment that almost everyone manages to make, period, end quote. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a, necessarily a bad idea, but... I think getting someone invest starting investing earlier is better than hitting the checklist um, before you start. One of the quibbles that I have, and I go back and forth on this, is you've kind of alluded to this earlier on. He says at one point, I'd rather invest in a company that makes drugs, soft drinks, razor blades, or cigarettes, aka addictive addictive things, yeah. minus the razor blades, than a company that makes toys. And I get what he's saying on his face, but I also ask myself, like, what kind of... What kind of companies do I want to invest in? How do I want to feel about the company personally before I become an investor? How much does that matter? How much does it not? So not necessarily a quibble, but that set me down like an internal debate a little bit. Should you buy tobacco stocks? Mm, I don't know. Go back and forth. He's a big fan of Philip Morris. He is. <laughs> but I, I think it's more illustrative of like focusing on things that people need to buy mm -hmm, versus, totally. and that's where the razor blades fit in versus like maybe. I guess he would argue against a Hasbro, which has not been a fabulous performer over the past 10 years. The biggest quibble of all. I actually loved this because the book gets a little unhinged around the section of when to call the company's investor relations department. My first thought when I was reading through this was like, thank goodness for the internet. Because there was a period of time where if you wanted to know the Wall Street estimates for a company, you had to get on the phone which you might not know the number of the investor relations department. So you have to call your broker, get the number for the investor relations department, hope they pick up, and then tell you the Wall Street analysts for earnings. Now it gets a little unhinged because Lynch has some helpful questions and topics about what to do when you call the investor relations department. 
including like possibly lying to them. Like, let's say the investor relations department gives you the cold shoulder. What do you do? This is Lynch's advice. Quote, in the unlikely event that investor relations gives you the cold shoulder, you can tell them that you own 20,000 shares and are trying to decide whether to double your position. Then casually mention that your shares are held in, quote, street name. That ought to warm things up. Actually, I'm not recommending this, but fibbing is something that people would think of and the odds of you being caught in it are nil. The company has to take your word for the 20,000 shares because shares held in street name are lumped together by the brokerage for- firms and stored in, un- in undifferentiated matter. Asses, end quote. <laughs> I love this because I th- you can see he's, he's changing his mind mid-paragraph. Mm-hmm. Actually. <laughs> um, and now, I don't know. I just found this entertaining where, let's say, you want to call the investor relations department, but you don't know what to ask them, Mary. What do you do? What do you ask them? Quote, even if you have no script, you can learn something by asking general questions. What are the positives for this year? And what are the negatives? Maybe they'll tell you about a plant in Georgia that lost $10 million last year, but has now been closed down, or about the unproductive division that's being sold off for cash. Maybe some new product has come along to speed up the growth rate, end quote. That feels a little bit like insider trading. Like, they're oh, now that you're on the phone, we're going to tell you that we're laying off employees. And my quibble with that also is like, really, do I believe that if I were to call up the investor relations department in today's day and age that I wouldn't be given like corporate PR gobbledygook, like just packaging everything up really nicely with a bow? Do I really think that I would get something all that different from that? Yeah. I don't know that I think I would. Um, I, I think it depends. I think you know, it's if you email them with a specific question that they're not discussing in their earnings, they'll they'll probably get back to you with that. But a lot of, and again, this is like I, I know we're probably unfairly judging it decades later. You know, those general questions can probably be answered any other places. What what were your quibbles? Okay, this is not so substantive, but. This book is illustrated with stock charts, and I found them absolutely impossible to read. <laughs> they have like what appears to be Peter Lynch's handwriting annotating them, and it's over just dark grid lines. So to me, you could barely even see the direction that the that the stock was moving. So that was a big quibble that I had, but I digress. It's not terribly substantive. That's, that's more with the editor than Lynch, I think. <laughs> Who do I got to talk to? And... Honestly, other than that, we mostly covered it. But if you, okay, put the editor hat on. What, you're reading this book in 2023. What do you add? What do you take away? Okay, there are many examples that he uses to get a single point across, such as um, experience a product before you buy the stock. We get it in golf courses. We get it in hotels. There seems to be a lot of repetition in some cases to drive home a main theme, which, granted, I... I understand. Like sometimes you need multiple examples to like communicate something, but in some cases, I found it a little, um, a little repetitive. Yeah, I'm with you on this. Like I, I loved a lot of the examples, especially when it was company names that I could recognize and that I could look at 40 years later and be like, "Whoa, he was spot on." Yeah, that was really rewarding and fun and made this read more like a novel. <laughs> yeah, but there were other times when I thought. Uh, okay, it's another example. I can kind of skip and skim this and go ahead because I know what the point of the story is. And it's one of 75,000 examples in the book. One thing I really liked, though, with the examples is that there is an amount of balance and humility. I Mm. think he generally, if he talks about like one big winner he's had, he's also discussed like a mistake he's made or times he's been wrong wrong about a stock. And you know what? Maybe that is one of the personal qualities you need to be to be an investor. So I, I do respect him for walking the walk a little bit on that. 
Totally. And he also brings up, and this is one of the like lines that he says, you know, people kind of use to stop themselves from investing in the first place. But he says at one point, like, you can't win them all. And you're not, you can't spend all your time regretting that you sold, you still made money, but you sold when you could have held on and made even more money. And that's kind of a point that he makes in the examples. He does admit, oh, if I had done X, Y, or Z, I could have benefited in this way or another. But he's also quite humble about it and is like, you shouldn't get hung up on the potential unrealized wins or losses that you missed out on, especially if you still made a good decision at the end of the day. All right, Mary, any like revisions for decades later? Anything else you want to talk about? We know Lynch managed the Magellan Fund, so he is like totally engrossed in this world. But I really appreciated the time that he spent talking about just how much money it costs to kind of keep this whole shirt don't want to call it a charade, but this whole like operation going. He mentions at one point that it's just like, I forget the exact number, but it's this massive number of money just to like have your fund look one way on January 1, do a whole bunch of shuffling throughout the year, and then have it change throughout the year, but on December 31st, effectively look exactly how it did with the exact same stocks held as it did in January 1. And I think that that's kind of interesting. He doesn't like... He's in this world, but he also kind of addresses, okay, there's a lot moving around. And I I do this for people. You can do this yourself. That's like pretty core also to the Molly Fool philosophy. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of this book is like, I am in this world, but I am not of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, just like <laughs> I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I think one thing that would be interesting to hear him discuss now is about how much more stocks fluctuate, um, whether it's uh, in, in NVIDIA gaining the full market share of McDonald's in one day. FedEx lost, I think, 30% in one day late last year. That might actually make the case for for cycling stalwarts stronger in his mind. But I'm curious to, I'd be more curious to read a revision about, you know, maybe a more volatile market in part because of op because of more options trading and also like if any of his philosophy has changed now that trading costs are zero. He does have some thoughts on options. He does. <laughs> he does consider trading. He compares options trading to alcoholism, which I Another one of those savage lines. <laughs> raised a little bit of a question mark, but it's towards the end of the book. He 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 puts his his thoughts on short selling and options towards the end of the book for a reason, I think. Yeah. Um it's brief. Mary, overall review. Overall review, I hate number scales, so I'm not going to put it on a number scale. Okay. But I think it's definitely a worthwhile read, and it's fabled for a reason. I think that I understood the Motley Fool philosophy of investing a lot better because I have read this book. And it. I loved, again, I know I've hit on this before, but I loved the focus on research and how there is a story everywhere. You just have to keep your eyes open. That was like the biggest takeaway for me. Yeah. I think- highly recommend. Highly recommend. I, I would recommend it as well. I think some of the advice is a little dated. That's fine. Take what you need from it. I think the fundamentals of the book are really strong. And I, I also really like how it gives you investing frameworks too. You know, when you write your there there's like suggestions on how to write an investment thesis based on which bucket your your stock falls totally. into. And I think that it helps you kind of set those expectations for for stock, stock picking and investing really, really well. Yeah, go for it. It's it's also not that like parts of it are long, but it's not that long of a read. If you listen to a daily investment podcast, mm-hmm. it's worth your time. It's it's probably worth your time. And if you do give it a read and you haven't already, let us know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> podcasts with an S at full.com podcasts at full.com. 
always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh,